This is Marriage to the Max, episode number 141. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Marriage to the Max. I'm your host, Kelly Hurst. This is Brett Hurst. And we are marriage educators and co-founders of Home Encouragement. And this podcast is designed to help you take your marriage to the next level. Well, today's episode is called Spontaneous Versus Responsive Part 2. Uh, Before we jump into today's episode, I want to alert uh, listeners that this content is not for children's ears. So if you've got kids in the room, this might be a good time for you to press pause and pick up this episode a little bit later. Well, uh, if we're reviewing last episode, we sort of talked to who might be the low desire person typically in the relationship which is, as we've said before, not always the female, even though that's kind of a stereotype. We also unpacked this idea of responsive arousal versus spontaneous arousal. So if you haven't listened to part one of this episode, please go back and listen to that because it's got some really important content that I think is helpful. Do a quick review, though, first about the spontaneous and the responsive. Well, the spontaneous arousal is the... When you become aroused in anticipation of a sexual experience. So spontaneous arousal is literally, you know, you're thinking about sex and all of a sudden you are desirous mm-hmm. of that. It does, you don't even have to necessarily be with the person for you to become aroused. Not a very complicated process. No, pretty simple. And then responsive arousal is when you become aroused because you are experiencing some sort of sexual closeness in a positive way. And so... You're starting the routine and then you start getting in the mood. Right, in response to what's happening. And there are a lot of people, and I will say a lot of women, who tend to fall into that responsive arousal category. And before, pretty recently, I would say probably in the last couple of decades, this kind of conversation has not been mainstream. So... Our culture has always talked about or acted as though spontaneous arousal is the natural, normal way that everybody should be that way. Like that, that's normal. Like that's the normal and anything else is less than normal. But responsive arousal is just as normal and Mm -hmm. as common as spontaneous arousal. It's just not really been, you know, highlighted in movies and- Identified. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. So for me, this has been really, really key in understanding. And and, and in the last episode, we used the analogy of if you get invited to a party by your best friend a week from now, you say yes to the party because it's your friend and you're going to go. But as you get closer to the party, you're like, oh, there's going to be traffic. I got to get dressed up. (laughs) All these negatives. Yeah, I had this long work week. I don't really feel like going, but you go because it's your best friend. And once you're there, you have a great time that's responsive arousal. You know, you're not exactly thinking about it, looking forward to it, but once you're in the flow, then you really have an enjoyable time. So today we wanted to have, we wanted to just take a few pointers toward the high desire spouse to give you some encouragement 
And again, I don't want to get too in a box on these labels. I don't want to say that everyone is high desire for their entire life or low desire for their entire life. Or in every situation. Exactly. Different days bring different results. Yeah. But But if you typically kind of land in one of these places, it might be helpful to hear some, some things. So what would be the first thing you would say to a high desire spouse? Yeah, I think the thing the high desire spouse needs to hear the most is that to encourage them to try not to take the no personally, mm. you know, which is which is tough. You you may hear it redundantly, you know, and uh, most people with low libidos will tell you that it has nothing to do with their partner's attractiveness or their sex appeal. Mm-hmm. It's simply that sex doesn't drive them the same way it does the high desire spouse. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is a biggie. I, I, in fact, this may be one of the most important lessons for the high desire spouse to learn. And I think it takes a long time to get this. Brett, would you say it, it took us a while to sort of get to where you really believed me Yeah, when I would tell you, I promise it's not anything to do with you or your attractiveness or anything like that. Yeah. I think, I think in our situation, there were days I believed it and days that I mm-hmm. thought otherwise. Yeah. Know. Well, we go into marriage with so many, I just think, misconceptions around sex that when our sex life doesn't play out the way we think it's going to, we just naturally start telling ourselves stories. And they're often wrong stories Uh or incorrect stories. Yeah. And they can also be conflated with previous stories, you know, what you like your life experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Things that you brought into the marriage, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Mm -hmm. it's a whole nother conversation, but uh, it definitely has an effect. Yeah, for sure. One of the things we also talk to the high desire spouse about is to not view your partner as a lemon. Mm -hmm. A a lemon being? You know, someone who's defective. Yeah. (laughs) Because honestly, I will say personally, this is one that I struggled with a lot because in our relationship, you know, we've said before on the show, I tend to fall in that low desire camp more times than not. And I don't know how many times I've said to you through the years, I'm so sorry, I'm I'm defective. I wish I could fix it, da-da-da-da. You you're know? definitely not. And it's important that a couple realize that this is their journey. It's not like the person who's the low desire, there's something wrong with them or, you know, they've got to get fixed yeah. <laughs> in some way. Well, and this raises an important sidebar comment, which is, you need to not be concerned with what other couples are doing or not doing. Oh my gosh, that's true. The the comparison trap, you know, every marriage has its own footprint, like you said just a second ago. Every marriage has their own journey. This is uh, more than just about sex even. This is about mm-hmm. growing together in total intimacy as a couple, striving to to live out that one flesh identity that mm-hmm. God has given them together as a married couple. Yeah. Uh, it has nothing to do with anybody else's situation or or the world or what culture's telling us and all those types of things. We we need to kind of keep those things at bay and just and just focus on our own relationship. I'm so glad you said that because there are numbers that float out there that say what the, you know, average amount of times per week and all this kind of stuff. And A, I never believe those numbers completely because people lie about their sex lives all the time. People especially lie? Especially in surveys, <laughs> in sex surveys. And so I don't even know that we can trust the numbers if we were to, you know, have them. 
But the other point is what what you say. Those numbers can be poison to your relationship mm-hmm. if that's not what, you know, if you're comparing yourself to that. You have shattered. It's an arbitrary number. You have shattered a great illusion for me that people lie. Oh. <laughs> Something else to consider, and this is this is kind of new information to me in the last few years, but according to sex therapy experts, the part of the brain that is the caretaker, so let's just get in the mind of, say, a stay-at-home mom, the part of the brain that is a caretaker is the antithesis of the part of the brain that is sexual. Meaning that, in your example, a stay-at-home mom who's kind of in that world of nurturing her kids. Who, taking care, serving, so fixing. Yeah, and so she's activating that part of the brain. Uh-huh. Then all of a sudden has to go into this world of hopefully being sexually. Yeah, the, the idea being that caretaking requires selflessness. You, you're thinking of other people, you're serving, mm-hmm. you're taking care of them. That is the literal opposite part of the brain than the selfish part of the brain, and I'm using the word selfish in a positive way, the selfish part of the brain that pursues sexual pleasure. Right. So this is why so many mommies are rarely in the mood for sex, particularly young mommies. Mm -hmm. And even if they're not stay-at-home moms, they may work all day long. Then they come home to their, quote, second job, which is taking care of the kids and getting dinner. And I'm not trying to imply that men don't help do that. Right. And and I, and this could apply to men as well, but just parenting yeah. in general. My point is when you are become a parent and you are serving little other human beings, right. it is exhausting. And it's hard to, be, to make that shift. To flip that switch is almost impossible. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to really incorporate some transition time from when you take off your parent hat to when you put on your Marilyn Monroe hat, which kind of is a, a transitional buffer zone. Yeah. I don't know if Marilyn Monroe wore a lot of hats, but I don't remember that being <laughs> the case. But anyway, so that's just something to consider because we will hear, and, and again, I don't mean to stereotype, this is just a, a an anecdote, but we will hear typical young husbands who are dads who will say, she seemed to have a high sex drive until the baby came. What happened? And we go, well, there's kind of a reason for that. And this is one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. So that's been really helpful information for me to understand recently. So as a sidebar, what can help create that transition experience? You know, what, what can a high desire spouse, let's say in this case, more stereotypically, what could a husband do to help that? Well, when we were young, one thing that would help me, Brett, is if you were in the mood for us to play around, you would say early in the evening, you'd say, let me bathe the kids. I'll put them down. I'll do story time, the whole thing. You go have a bubble bath, do your nails, whatever you want to do. And that helped. Oh, huge, because it just gave me the space to just be quiet and just, and even think about our little dalliance, you know? Well, like you've said many times, it gave you the opportunity to not be pawed at by little ones or by big ones. Yeah, because I, I, for the first few years, was a stay-at-home mom. And so this, the touching and the skin-on-skin, skin, there was a point where as a mom, you just go, I don't want to be touched anymore. Right. Get off of me. <laughs> exactly. So something else we say to the high-desire spouse is learn how to invest in new ways 
to be close to your mate. Mm-hmm. This is important. Make sure that your spouse feels that he or she can be physically close to you without always activating your launch sequence. So we're talking about the importance of non-sexual touch yes. and other things. Yeah. Emotional connection. And- that's right. Because what we will hear from low desire couples, or I'm sorry, low desire spouses, is they will often say, I would give him more kisses or I would give her more massages or whatever if I felt like it could not be construed as an invitation to sex. So basically you're increasing trust Yeah. with all this, just that this is not a manipulative deal that's being struck, mm-hmm. but that this is more in the realm of mutual uh, experience. Yeah. So we've heard some uh, friends of ours say, I need to be able to touch you, period, not necessarily touch you, comma. Right. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Touch you without it going anywhere. Yeah. And because I think once that happens and there's a little, because we will literally hear people say, I would do it more often, or, mm-hmm. you know, I would kiss them or touch them more often if I didn't feel like it would be misconstrued. If the approach were different. Yeah. And so if there's that emotional safety there and even that that kind of physical closeness for someone to cuddle with you on the couch without feeling like they're teasing, you know, basically, that it's helpful. Yeah, good. What about, you know, just as the high desire person just doing a self-check? Yeah, I guess that's uh, just kind of getting back to basics and asking the question, you know, am I investing in the emotional intimacy of our relationship? Am I investing in the other facets of intimacy that Mm -hmm. exist? Yeah, I think asking your spouse or asking yourself, is my spouse's love tank full? You know, because there's so many other areas of uh, ways to be close and invest in each other. Or do you just come sniffing around when you're in the mood for sex? Sniffing around. Sniffing around. around. Don't mean to make any implications there, but... Nice image there. (laughs) But, you know, we have heard people say, he only pays me attention when he's in the mood for sex. Or she only comes and touches me when she wants to fool around. And we go, okay, well, you've got to make sure the rest of that relationship is connecting and are, is there the kindness, the sweetness? Is there respect? Is there trust? There's just so many different facets. Right. Well, on that note, then I will say this. I love you, period. <gasps> and I love you, comma. <laughs> you're, you're just going to throw every punctuation mark in there. <laughs> <laughs> Semicolons. Yeah. I love you, exclamation point. That's right. <laughs> and then finally, what what do you think is just how we wrap all this up when we talk to high desire spouses? Yeah, I, I think it's just important to be praying and, mm-hmm. you know, putting things in the right perspective all the time, trusting that God is at work in your marriage as well and mm-hmm. that he's involved, not uninterested in mm-hmm. the continued nurture of your marriage and relationship. Yeah. Kind of helps you keep everything in the right perspective. Helps, I think, particularly with, well, with both the high desire and the low desire spouse, that this is not a catastrophic Mm-hmm. situation. We'll get through this. Mm-hmm. We'll figure this out. Really, it's a gift because this kind of impasse requires you to communicate in ways that are really helpful for your marriage in the long run. Yeah. And there's so many different areas of marriage that require patience 
that require sacrifice and prayer to to get through, why would our sex life be any different? I mean, we pray for and ask for patience around job situations and money and other big issues. Sure, you know, and so our sexual relationship that this is where I think so many couples fall into just some misconceptions around because we've been called the culture has fed us so many lies about yeah. sex. Yeah. So Wait, many. You mean people lie? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I hope this this conversation has been helpful to couples who have differing libidos because you know, it's a pretty common thing. I, I just, I don't want any couple to feel catastrophic, like you said, and mm-hmm. and I don't want them to feel like it'll always be exactly like this because right. we change and evolve and grow and age. Seasons and, come and go. Yeah, absolutely. And we learn different ways of being together. So anyway, I hope couples were encouraged by this conversation. Yep. And I do love you, exclamation point. I love you. Three exclamation points. You win. Well, if you would like to contact us, you can find us at marriagetothemax.org. Also, we hope you'll follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Podcast Rocket for producing this episode. Well, thanks so much for listening today. And until next time, remember, healthy marriage, healthy world. God bless y'all. 